The scripture reading for today is from Ruth 4, verses 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. May I pray for you? Please. <laughs> Dear Lord, we just come before you and we thank you for Jerry traveling um, here to give us your word. And we, you know what you have revealed to her and we ask that we may have ears to listen and that our hearts might take in what you would reveal to us through her. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Good morning. And Lord, my own word of prayer is that you will allow me to be a voice, but that it will be your word that we hear here today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is your fourth week in this book. So I think it's familiar, eh? And I haven't been able to hear what the women who have shared ahead of me said. So I am much hoping that, uh, what? I won't bore you with what you've already been hearing and hearing, okay? The songs this morning, worship team, were wonderful. And... You could just take those home and pray with them, and you would have the heart of what I think Ruth has to say to us today. But I want to start by asking you all a question. Whose story is this, the book called Ruth? Whose story is this, do you think? To you. Courage? It's our own story? Okay. Anybody else? God's story? That's always a safe answer, isn't it? You know? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Any other ideas? It's called Ruth. Is it Ruth's story? Ah, uh, they were at the seminar yesterday. 
And, but, and what about the ending? I mean, there's all this tragedy in the beginning, and then along comes this nice little mushy love story thing, and then everybody lives happily ever after? Is that our gospel? Is that the takeaway from this story? It's kind of like Cinderella, you know? Except there's no wicked stepmother. There's a not-so-wicked mother-in-law instead. What about that happily ever after ending? Is that what we experience in our walk with Jesus Christ? Is that what it's really about? It's not, is it? Not always. And sometimes if that's not our experience, we can find ourselves wondering, is it because we just don't have enough faith? But I thought God called me. He's let me down. Whether or not we expect a happily ever after in our relationship with the Lord, I think touches on our theology of suffering and on our um, ideas of what walking with the Lord is really all about. So for you and me, when things get really bad, what is it that we think the Lord should do? I mean, if he truly loves us, if he's really able Should there be success and prosperity and great victory and happiness? And if it doesn't happen, we end up doubting his love and his calling? Or when we do experience victories and rescues, because we do, do we tell it to others as the inevitable consequence of the fact that we had faith? What do we believe about what the lives of people of faith should be? Do we expect victory? Or do we live always in whatever our circumstances as people of hope? What do we love and look for in our relationship with Jesus Christ? Do we love the blessings or do we love the giver of the blessings? Because despite the happy ending in this story, which we're very glad for, aren't we? Uh, I think that this is a, a, a gorgeous story about people of hope. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share this with you today because last fall, before I was ever asked to do this, I was in a, a Bible study group. I'm in a group with women from all over the world, and we get together every Monday at 1 o'clock in Turkey. And women from Japan to South Africa to the eastern seaboard of the United States talk about the passage of Scripture we've been studying. Now, how cool is that? Well, we were studying Ruth. And as we ended the study and people were sort of sharing their takeaways, I said, I don't think I'm done with Ruth. I really would like to spend more time with Naomi. Naomi is drawing me somehow, and I'd like to just spend some time with her. And then this invitation came. And so I'm very grateful for this. I'm grateful for you. Um, Naomi's story. 
because that's whose story I think it is. I think it's Naomi's story. The book of Ruth begins with Naomi and it ends with Naomi. And it's like if you have a peanut butter sandwich or something, if you take the bread away, all you've got is the mushy stuff left in the middle. But instead, we've got Naomi at both ends. And then, of course, ultimately, at the very end, we have the line of David and the line of Jesus Christ. So we have this as God's story. Naomi, her emotions, her despair, her joy, it's her feelings It's her experience that permeates the whole story of Ruth. Some people compare Naomi to Job. They say she's the female Job in the scriptures. She experiences famine. She loses everything and is in debt. She's a refugee. She's lost her husband. She's lost both of her sons. Some people see Naomi as a whiner, a bitter woman. But I think if we stop and think about what Naomi really experienced, what Naomi really suffered, number one, she never says she's bitter. She says her circumstances are bitter, that God has given her bitter things. And that's true. He has. But she says, I want to go back and rejoin the people of faith. I want to return to Israel. Naomi has a lot of what happened to Job in her life. I would say I think she's got better friends. Um, Why did I relate to Naomi? Well, I'm of that age, you know. My kids are grown. My kids are married. And so I think, well, who in this book is most like me? And then I think a little further and I think, well, wow, there the resemblance ends. Naomi and me would be more alike if Kurt and my children had all died tragically. Maybe if I were a woman of my age in Syria, and 10 years ago, my husband was killed. And then my oldest child was conscripted into the army, and he was killed. And I sent my younger one off to another country in hopes of a better life, and that child died on the way. And in the meanwhile, in the meantime, my, my home had been bombed, and I had lost absolutely everything then I would resemble Naomi. My comfortable body, shriveled, dirty, hopeless. My health failed. You know, Ruth gleans in the story. Naomi doesn't go out and glean. Well, why wouldn't she? She must not be able I've uh, brought us a few f- pictures today of there. If you Google images of Ruth, man, images of Naomi, you get a lot of art. But this is an example of what a, much of the art is like. Look at them. Their clothes are beautiful. Their hair is done. 
they're all sort of just romantically, isn't this, you know, a great little love story? Isn't that cool? Can we go to the next slide? Maybe we would see Naomi and Ruth a little more like this. Naomi is old. She's leaning on her staff. She looks weak. If you look at her neck, she looks thin. Her hair has gone white. Or how about this next one? Gleaning. Because they have no food. Or our next one. Suffering. Impoverished. But still together. This is my favorite picture I found of Naomi. Doesn't she just look like somebody you'd want to know? And then another favorite. They're a little overdressed, I imagine, but the joy that comes with Obed's birth. Naomi's times, Naomi lived in the time of the judges. At that time in Israel's history, we're told that Israel, without much leadership, had descended into a situation where most people just did whatever they felt like doing. The way the scripture put it, puts it is everybody did as they saw fit, or everybody did what was right in their own eyes. They had the law. They had the rich history of being part of the people of God, God's protection, God's provision, God's gift of their land. They had so much, but they had become self-seeking. Self-protection was the norm in the time of the judges, in Naomi's time. And yet against this backdrop, we have these three people who are so generous, who are so loving, who exhibit such honor in their speech and their actions. We have Naomi. Who is this woman who a Moabite girl like Ruth would love to this extent? Whose daughter-in-law, Ruth, was so inspired with a passion for God and to remain a part of the people of God and to give her life over to caring for this woman? Naomi, who on her return was received with compassion by her community, she's clearly respected and loved as she returns to Israel. Naomi, who, regardless of whether we, she wanted Ruth to come along with her or not, because, I mean, here's more baggage, here's one more mouth to feed, one more person to be responsible for, when I got nothing, honey. Whether she wanted Ruth or not, she received her love and her loyalty with generosity. This is a woman who named her life as bitter, and who wouldn't? but she never expresses bitterness towards God. She never denies him. She never curses him. That's Naomi. Who's Ruth? She's loyal. She's self-sacrificing. Look what she gives to Naomi. 
She's hardworking at the worst sort of tasks, like gleaning in the fields. And remember how that first day she went out and Boaz gave her some food to eat and she saved some of it and took it back to Naomi to share? Who is this Ruth? She's circumspect in a high-risk setting. She receives direction that's pretty strange direction. Go lay at the foot of his bed. And she says, yes, ma'am. Ruth is always respectful whenever she speaks. Whatever she does, she's courageous. It never says in the book that she's beautiful. Never mentions how she looks. But her conversion to the people of God, which would have been a requirement of her marriage to a Jew, her conversion to the people of God is genuine. It's real. And it never flags and it never falters. So who's this Naomi? Who's this Ruth? Who's Boaz? This rich guy who goes out to his fields in the middle of a busy harvest and even notices the gleaners. And he extends to them dignity and protection. Goes out of his way to do it. Who is this guy who, when Ruth kind of does her proposal thing that was a couple weeks ago, last week, I guess. Who is this guy that is so gracious about it? Um, He's generous in his words of gratitude to this impoverished Moabite woman, and he's the rich guy with stature at the gate with the elders, and he's so generous to her. He gives her such dignity. He's not troubled. Who is this guy? He's not troubled by her foreign origin. He's not troubled by her previous marriage. He's not troubled by the fact that she was barren in her previous marriage. And he's not troubled by the implications for his progeny of taking her as his wife. Who are these people? Well, let's turn to the passage. We're in Ruth 4. The first section of the passage is about verses 1 to 12, and I think of it as the sandal thing. Um, As Ruth 4 opens, they've had this, Boaz has had this nighttime visit from Ruth, and first thing in the morning, he's on his feet, he's made her a promise that he will serve as her kinsman redeemer, that he will take her as his wife, and he immediately goes out and does what he needs to do to begin to execute his promise. He gathers the elders and the witnesses at the city gate. They all sit down together. He manages to show up just as the kinsman redeemer, the first in line, is walking by. And so he grabs him, gets his attention, and then he clearly and quite openly lays out the situation and what he intends to do, what his desire is. He says, you're first in line, I'm second in line, but there's this land to be redeemed on behalf of Naomi, and I would like to do it. Now, he's also kind of setting the guy up for a hard decision because he doesn't mention the fact that Ruth comes along with the package. So maybe he's a little bit setting something up, or maybe he just assumes that everybody knows that Ruth comes along with 
the package. This isn't a big town. This is the law of the land. And this other guy is just quite willing to ignore it. So, whatever. Um, he, but he is clear. In Boaz's character, we see a man who doesn't take shortcuts to get what he wants. Um, now, the primary kinsman redeemer, when he realizes that the land is on the block for sale, he immediately says, oh, yeah. Yeah, I want that. And then Boaz says, well, you know, it does come with Ruth, this poor Moabite woman who's barren. He doesn't say all of that, but she's known in the community. Oh, no. Oh, no, not that foreign female baggage. I don't want her. And everyone did as they saw fit in the time of the judges. We don't have to pay attention to the law. We don't have to care for the woman. We can have the land. We can take it. We can get what you want. We can get what we want. Did you notice that in this book, everybody's got a name? We know the names of the dead husband. We know the names of both the dead sons. We know the names of both the daughter-in-laws, including the daughter-in-law that turns back and doesn't come. This is the only guy in the book of Ruth that doesn't get named. The guy who won't marry Ruth because he wants to protect his name and his inheritance. So then they did the sandal thing. The guy says, I don't want her. You can have it. You can take the redemption. And then the writer kind of elaborates about how in that time, in that period of the history of Israel, which is obviously not the writer's period of history, because he already knows about the line all the way down to David. Um, so he's explaining this is how they did it in that time. I think... He does that to make it clear again that Boaz is not a guy who skips anything. He's not a guy who tricked the first kinsman redeemer out of his inheritance. He didn't do anything that was less than open and above board and honorable and complete. Us, we shake hands, we sign papers, we visit the notaire, uh, we visit the tapu office. They... I won't do it, took off a shoe and handed it to the guy in front of witnesses. And then the witnesses said, we see this, the transaction has happened and everybody acknowledges that it was done. I bet they gave the sandal back afterwards. I mean, what are you gonna do? Go put the sandal in your safety deposit boxes? And the witnesses become well-wishers because Boaz is a respected member of their community. He's known as a man of honor. The witnesses become people who call down on him the Lord's blessing. They treat Boaz with such respect, with such honor. They say, may your wife Ruth be like Rachel and Leah, other daughters who were treated like chattel and sold along with the property, but from whom came the 12 tribes of Israel. 
They said, and may you grow in stature and standing and be richly blessed and honored in the people of God, Boaz. And, oh, may your wife also be like Tamar, Tamar, who bore Perez, another badly treated woman who became a part of the line of Christ along with Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba. Another failed Leverite marriage because again, this was the situation like it is in Ruth where the husband had died and so the next of kin was supposed to marry the wife in order to produce a child and Judah had refused to give his son. So it's interesting that in this, in this line they bring up the only other one that I can think of that's recorded in scripture. So there's the setting for the happily ever after. Naomi read for us um, from verse 13 today, um, the marriage, then we totally shift the scene and the marriage and the child is is told, the marriage and the birth of the child, Obed, is told from Naomi's perspective. And so we've been having the blow by blow of the transaction. And then at verse 13, we have a time shift of, you know, maybe between 13 and 14, there's, there's at least nine months. But maybe there's 10 years. Because it does say, again, uh, Ruth, who has been barren in her first marriage, has not born children. Uh, and it says, and the Lord enabled her to to conceive and have a child. And that may be just a little extra bit to say, and it wasn't just that easy to have a kid after she married Boaz either. We don't know. But so you've got in verse 13, a period of at least nine months, but maybe a much longer time in, in the wait for a child. And then it says, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. That's the same blessing that was put on Boaz by the witnesses at the gate. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than seven sons has given him birth. All praise is given to God. And we see here that Naomi is a woman who's beloved by her friends as well as she is by Ruth because they gather around her and they just love on her in the birth of this child. But is this happily ever after? A child's been born I too have a foreign daughter-in-law. She's a Muslim background believer. And she is a Ruth. And I could easily say Ada is better than seven sons. But I don't have seven sons. And if I would never say Ada is better than Kurt who died 
or Dan who died, or Kate who died. And so now it's all okay because I've got Ruth and it doesn't matter that I've got these other things happening in my life, that I've had these great griefs. Naomi is still a widow. Her sons are still dead. She is richly blessed, and I'm sure she's deeply grateful to God. But she will bear the pain and the scars of her losses for all of her life. We're happy for her. We're happy for all of them. But is it happily ever after, really? And did it have to happen this happy way? For we who are in Christ, should we expect our deepest burdens to be met in this way? I'm going to take us a minute to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We all know that verse, don't we? And then it goes on in verses 13 to 15 of Hebrews to say, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised before they died. They saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth, People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. And if they had been thinking of the country they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, to be called Naomi's God, to be called the God of Boaz, the God of Ruth. Hebrews 11 goes on from there to talk about any number of people who persevered in faith and saw God's deliverance. But then towards the end of the passage, in verse 35, he takes up the others. There were others who were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put out, they were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, lived in caves and in holes in the ground, gleaned in the fields until they died because they had nothing. Did it have to have this happy ending in order to be a story about the people of God? Of course not. Of course not. But the rest of the story, that little genealogy at the end 
takes us to the bigger picture, doesn't it? The bigger hope. Something Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, they never saw it or imagined that they would be included in the line of a king like David, which was the pinnacle when this author was writing. But we know that the line of David continues to the line of Jesus Christ. So for you and me, are we living for, praying for, expecting happily ever after solutions to our problems, to our confusion, to our trouble, to our heartache? What do we want from our Lord? Do we want happiness? Do we suggest to others when we give our testimonies that if they will just follow the Lord, they will have happiness? Or do we live as people of hope? That is, do we hope in things that we may never see this side of eternity, that in fact we probably won't? Do we hope because we understand that God knows what he's doing? that he's good enough that a life hidden in him lived according to his ways, his laws in his presence is enough. In fact, it's vastly more than enough that he alone is enough. And what are some of the markers that would characterize our lives if we were genuinely living with that kind of hope? These three people, they were all full of grace. Their actions, everything they did was motivated by love, by generosity, by hope in the ultimate goodness and grace of God. No self-centered grasping, no cruelty to anyone else, no self-protection, not even the luxury of just being indifferent. Think of Boaz looking at the gleaners in the field. You know, he could have just ignored it. They don't even take the luxury of being indifferent. Naomi could have sold to that first redeemer. Or everybody did as they saw fit to anybody probably who would get her out of debt. Ruth could have stayed home. She could have run after a younger man. She could have eaten up all the food in the fields and brought a lot less home to Naomi. She could have worked less hard. Boaz could have never even noticed her. Or he could have taken her and abused her. All of these people lived as people of hope and demonstrated graciousness, generosity. Naomi, she returned to Israel, to her people, even though she came back with nothing. She accepted Ruth. And then she went to the effort to seek a good marriage for Ruth. Ruth, she gave up her home. She gave up her culture. 
She gave up whatever prospects she might have had if she'd stayed with her home people. She did it out of love and loyalty to Naomi, yes, but I think she really did it out of a love for her God. The faith that she had adopted, the God who had adopted her, Naomi lived her life in hope in that, and not Naomi, that's Ruth, lived her life in hope in that woman. And then there's Boaz, always generous, protecting the foreigner, treating her with dignity. The guy who took this barren widow as his wife in an open and public way, whatever indignity that might have included, People who honored and blessed God. People who honor and bless God today act with generosity and integrity despite our circumstances. If we really want, that's our main desire, a happily ever after scenario, for God to fix everything now, That's bondage. Then we live in bondage to what we think we need. Hope in God's character, in God's nature, in his actual promises is freedom. The freedom to live generously, the freedom to live in love, the freedom to be open-handed and unselfish with whatever we have, even if it's very little. The freedom to be people like the Good Samaritan or the widow who puts her last coin. So where are we? What choices does that leave you and me with? To protect ourselves, to be generous, to extend help, to pretend we don't notice, to blame God, or to be real about the fact that we have experienced loss and we're in great pain while continuing to honor and praise him. To cut corners in our dealings or to be open even at the risk of losing everything for ourselves. How practically speaking might the Lord be inviting you or inviting me today to live out the hope that we have in him. Blessings on you all. Thank you for allowing me to be with you.